Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt, the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2021 event that will take place April 12th through 14th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. And get your tickets today at our special early bird rate. While you're at CanMedEvents.com, be sure to sign up for email alerts to stay up to date with all the news surrounding this industry-leading event. The best place to sign up for those alerts is on our podcast page, which you can find in the main menu under the media tab. You can also go there directly via cammedevents.com slash coffee talk. There's a sign up form on that page and if you complete it, you will be entered into a drawing to win two CAMMED 2021 VIP dinner tickets. On this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Kevin Spellman from the National University of Natural Medicine. Kevin has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to medicinal plant, nutraceutical, and cannabinoid research, and he has authored 29 peer-reviewed publications on medicinal plants. Over the last 30 years, he has coordinated new product development, formulated product lines, advised on analytical and QC guidelines, research activity, and educational curriculums for industry and universities. Dr. Spellman will share his knowledge and expertise as an instructor for our CAMMED Medical Practicum, taking place Monday, April 12th. After that eight-hour course, attendees will walk away with practical information about clinical applications for cannabis medicine, dosing strategies, potential drug interactions, special considerations for geriatric and pediatric patients, and more. To learn more, go to canmedevents.com practicum. Kevin also shared a lot of his knowledge with me in our conversation. Topics we hit on include how the entourage effect includes more than just cannabinoids and terpenes, how plant-based medicines differ from single molecule pharmaceuticals, how plants use terpenes to communicate with each other, how high levels of terpenes can be toxic, how a plant's responses to environmental stresses can change their medicinal effects, how at-home extraction techniques compare to commercial processes, and much more. Before we get to that conversation, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, the American Cannabis Nurses Association. The ACNA is a nonprofit professional nursing organization that seeks to advance excellence in cannabis nursing practice through advocacy, collaboration, education, research, and policy development. The ACNA is comprised of a network of professional nurses across the country. They are rapidly growing and eagerly welcome more nurses who seek to learn about cannabis therapeutics and integrate it into their practice. The ACNA's annual Cannabis Care Conference is being held virtually December 6th through 8th. Go to CannabisNurses.org 2020 Annual Conference for more information. And finally, I want to thank the Hemp and Coffee Exchange for once again providing the hemp-infused caffeine boost that keeps this podcast going. If you don't know, hemp coffee is a healthy, delicious, natural product rich in trace minerals and nutrients, providing sustained energy without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, check out hempcoffeeexchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, as promised, here is my conversation with Dr. Kevin Spellman. Good afternoon, Dr. Spellman. How are you today? Good afternoon, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And I'm really excited to talk with you today um, about a topic that we've sort of touched on in prior podcasts with uh, Dr. Russo and Dr. Goldstein, um, this whole idea of the entourage effect. Um, In those other podcasts, we did talk a lot about the endocannabinoid system and, and how cannabinoids can affect the human body. But 
I know that there are a lot of other compounds in the cannabis plant um, that many researchers believe have an additional medicinal effect. And so I really wanted to explore that topic with you, mainly because uh, I reviewed your presentation that you gave at CAM in 2019 as part of the CME course, where you gave a great overview of the entourage effect in terpenes specifically. And I was really excited to bring that to the podcast audience. So first I'd like to start with the basics and perhaps you could give us a bit of an overview on the major types of compounds that we've found in the cannabis plant. And then perhaps we can dive into a little bit more detail in each one. Sure. Um, well, yeah, let's, let's start with that overview in terms of chemistry. And, and I just want to say, as we, as we dive into chemistry here, um, looking at plants, it's really important that we, you know, there's a common adage that, you know, what, when you're doing pharmacology with plants, you're looking for a, a gem in a jungle. And I think that's really a misunderstanding of plant chemistry and plant physiological activity in general, because really plants are loaded with uh, thousands of compounds, literally thousands. Now I know, I know what the current number is for cannabis is somewhere around four to 500, but I can assure you that that number is uh, grossly understated. If we look at, for example, wheat and corn, we've got about 3,000 to 5,000 constituents uh, um, in either one of those respectively there. And that should make us think those are the most studied plants on the planet because of their importance to human diet. But that should make us think that these aren't unusual plants, that all plants are going to have, let's say, at least a thousand compounds in them and probably closer to three to five thousand. And so when we get to cannabis or any other medicinal plant, we really have to acknowledge that there are a lot of common constituents in there. For example, some of the flavonoids such as quercetin and camphorol that are already known to be physiologically active, but in, in pharmacology labs, they get ignored because they're common. And so we already know, for example, quercetin hits uh, a very key site called SIRT6 inside the nucleus of a cell, which has profound implications for human health on the positive side. And, you know, so, so when we get to cannabis, we're looking at flavonoids that really some people have talked about, some researchers are looking at, but nobody's really looking at in a depth that I'd like to see. And still the cannabis community hasn't caught up with that. So the canflavin A, B, and C are of particular interest. We're looking at stilbenoids, which um, a, a famous stilbenoid that everybody seems to know in the natural products industry is resveratrol. Not to be saying that there's resveratrol in cannabis, there's not, uh, but there are stilbenoids from that same class of compounds that resveratrol belongs to in cannabis. And they're of great interest too. And, and there was a study in the last uh, two years, I think, that just really laid out further stilbenoids. There are only a few known in cannabis. And now there's, there's uh, at least a half a dozen that are known. Um, and then we get into the spermidine alkaloids. I mean, we, and we can keep going. And the root, right? The, the Friedelins, the epifriedelin. Um, there's lots of compounds that, uh, we need to be talking about that are known to be physiologically active, and yet we're still stuck on, uh, cannabinoids and terpenes. Not that there's not a lot to like there, but, but we're still stuck there. Yeah. And I'll admit some of those are new to me, <laughs> um, very much familiar, of course, with the cannabinoids and, uh, you know, THC, CBD, and, you know, their, their acid versions as well and terpenes as well, but stilbenoids, um, that's a new one for me. Um, I'm interested a little bit more to learning a bit more about that. Sure. So stilbenoids have been shown to be anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, uh, as well as some other, comp, uh, some other pharmacological activities, depending on uh, which stilbenoid we're talking about, but they're, they're of great interest. Um, and in terms of, you know, a person that's aging or an ill person or a person that just wants to enhance their health. Um, there's a few stilbenoids that are well known in the natural products industry th that are uh, of great importance. For example, coming back to resveratrol, and again, this isn't in cannabis, but it's possible we may find similar activity um, from some of the stilbenoids of cannabis. 
you know, resveratrol hits a, a target called CERT1 in the nucleus. And CERT1 is known for longevity. Like uh, uh, David Sinclair sold his research to, I forget which uh, pharma company it was, it might have been Pfizer, um, for a billion dollars, a billion dollars. Because, of course, longevity is the, is, <laughs> is the, uh, uh, the human goal here, I guess. Um, even in these crazy times, people still seem to want to live through it. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's lots to know there. Um, but but coming, to, you know, coming to the entourage effect. So really, the question that we're really asking here, it, understated question, the, the underlying question, is is isolated THC or isolated CBD or even a mixture of the, of the two the same as taking a aliquot a, a or a sample or a mouthful of cannabis? And I think most people in the cannabis industry would scream, no, it's not, and uh, as I would too. But the problem is pharmacologically, a lot of those people in that side of things are saying, yeah, well, you know, let's get rid of all the all the stuff and just get to the active compound. And this is a misnomer in general. If if we look at the idea of active compounds, um, there's really no clear scientific rationale that's been stated very uh, well to argue that uh, plant medicines should be reduced to their active constituent. Um, this was a really a, a, an artifact of modern research that started doing this. And the more and more we look at models like network pharmacology, where we think about multiple constituents hitting, um, hitting multiple targets in the body, in other words, hitting different parts of a cellular network or a physiological network. So whether we're talking tissues, whether we're talking cellular uh, receptors, whether we're talking enzymes, whether we're talking um, inside the nucleus and tweaking uh, transcription factors, you know, hitting more than one might be useful. And so this is what the network pharmacology is showing is that number one, we have to, we can reduce the dose, for example, of THC, if we have other compounds that support that activity. And number two, we really need to think about pharmacokinetics. So even if we just have an active constituent, oftentimes that active constituent getting into the body, getting past the gut is a huge issue. In, in fact, if you look at the data, um, about one out of two, every new drugs, uh, new drug entities um, that are trying to make it into into the shelf for, for physicians to be able to prescribe fail due to poor pharmacokinetics. But now what do we mean by pharmacokinetics? Essentially what we're talking about is in this case, specifically um, bioavailability. Now pharmacokinetics involves much more than that, but bioavailability is key, right? Because if the compound can't get past the gut, then we've got a real issue. In fact, it's all for naught, right? right. And so if you really look at the way that plants have handled this, and, and let's focus it, let's do a pollen-esque, as in Michael Pollen, let's do a pollen-esque perspective on this for a second. So plants produce these metabolites to protect themselves, right? And so many of these metabolites that we would be consuming are uh, antifungals, uh, um, antifeedants for herbivores so that they don't feed on, on continual in a plant or anti-parasitic or antiviral because a plant has got to protect itself. It wouldn't have made it through hundreds of millions of years of evolution without some sort of protection. And this protection for plants, since they can't pull up their roots and run, is chemistry, right? And so if the plant is gonna deliver an active compound, if it's produced an active compound that can protect it from a predator of some sort, if it can't get past the membrane of the predator, if it can't get past that gut, then it's all for naught. It's, it's wasted its ATP for nothing. Thus, it wouldn't have made it through evolution. So what plants do is when you, they deliver an active compound, you also get a bunch of other stuff with that, a bunch of other phytochemicals. And those phytochemicals assist in bioavailability. And so when it comes back to pharma and we're looking at the fact that they're isolating single compounds, 
throwing it in a capsule and hoping that it gets past the gut, this is ridiculous because this is not how evolution is designed it is in essence, you know, evolutionarily plants were selected to be able to deliver these compounds and the way they delivered them was not by making the perfect molecule that was pharmacokinetic, the appropriate, it was by having other uh, adjuvant compounds that supported the absorption of the active compound. And so this is when we take a mouthful of a plant, this is what's happening. There's lots of actives in that mouthful of plant, but there's also lots of other compounds that assist in the absorption of the actives. And so I think that's a real key piece that people tend to miss. Wow, that's interesting. And yeah, I think you're really hitting on a point that that seems to be seems to be playing out in more recent um, CAMED events is sort of this this shift or maybe it's not a shift, but this, this move towards sort of more um, isolated compounds and to use it for more kind of specific uses. Um, and there's a lot of um, people who are traditional, more traditionalists or in the cannabis medicine space who are, are very much proponents of the whole plant extract. But I have to imagine that, you know, there's, there's trade-offs with both. Um, mainly that, as you said before, there's so many unknown compounds in the plant, and there's also so much diversity between plants. How can you really trust that you're getting a consistent medicine to patients? If you excellent question, and this is the concern, right? This is this is the argument you get from the medical community: is well, how do we know what's in here? How do we know how much of each compound in the, is in there? And unless you've done something like GW Pharma has done, where they're very careful and they're cloning and so they're and the environmental conditions are exactly the same because they're growing indoor then you you do get variability but let's look back at hundreds of millions of years of evolution and talk about variability variability isn't a disadvantage variability can be an advantage in that um think about there's this concept called xenohormesis and, and this idea is that um plants respond to the environment by upregulating certain compounds or and or downregulating other compounds and in that response to the environment they're adapting so really when it comes down to thinking about an organism surviving even on an evolutionary level or even a short-term level it's all about adaptation and so if we can have a situation where the plant is upregulating and downregulating certain compounds that are support important for its survival. And then as humans or as other mammals or even, uh, um, you know, other types of, of animals besides mammals, if they consume that, then it could be argued that the, whatever was upregulated is basically a signal, a signal to their biology that something is potentially changing in the environment. And therefore, that signal can be used to upregulate certain uh, biological functions that might help an organism survive. So that's this whole concept of xenohormesis. And so that variability can actually be used as a plus. Now, there, uh, Jim Duke, who is a, a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Jim Duke, um, and fantastic ethnobotanist, uh, he used to say that the body would mine the compounds that you swallowed in a plant. It would go, okay, I need more of this. I don't need more of that. We can slough that off in our, in our waste product. Uh, oh, I need this. Uh, oh, just a little bit of that. I've got, enough, I got almost enough of that. And I think there's something there. And that's really as simple as that sound. That's really advanced science that we haven't gotten to yet. Um, but I do think there's certainly the potential to regulate what comes in and what, what goes out in terms of our needs, our physiological needs. This is already well known for certain vitamins. For example, vitamin C, um, we can have a situation where if we have enough vitamin C, we just essentially uh, slough it off in the gut. Uh, so in other words, and this is well known, high, high doses of vitamin C will cause loose stools. Well, what you're doing is eliminating the vitamin C that you can't use. In a cancer patient that could use uh, up to 40 grams a day of vitamin C, depending on what, what exactly is going on in their body, um, they're not gonna they're not gonna lose that. They're not gonna get diarrhea from high doses of vitamin C. So there's lots of ways to think about this, but we've been thinking really uh, in simplistic terms, and that's because honestly, 
if you really look at our science, it's been limited to very simplistic instrumentation um, until very recently. And with the Human Genome Project, we're seeing a huge um, advancement in understanding real-time physiology and what actually goes on. We've had these simple, simplistic models where we're drawing straight lines on graphs and expecting that to reflect reality. And, <laughs> and nothing could be further from the truth. It's a frozen uh, snapshot in time that we're looking at, not really what's going on in the body. And when we just look at one compound at a time and what it's doing, we really don't have a lot of information. But if we can look at bunches of genes being upregulated or downregulated at the same time, now we've got something closer to reality, closer to what happens every time we swallow a bolus of uh, kale or broccoli, right? Um, all kinds of genes are being upregulated and downregulated. I saw a report recently for reishi mushroom or reishi mushroom, some people say, Ganoderma lucidum, where they were showing 400 genes upregulated and about uh, 20 to 30 being downregulated when you take reishi. So this is what's the reality. And when we use one compound at a time, this isn't happening. And I would argue that as old as the human genome is, 2.5 to 5 million years, depending on who you read, that we really do have a situation where um, real-time physiology is very incredibly complex and active and our simplistic uh, portraits of what really goes on is just uh, mind-boggling, especially when we come across as an er with an arrogance <laughs> saying, oh, we understand completely what's going on. Mrs. Jones, just take this pill. Um, you know, sorry to put it out there, but... Uh, it's, it's rather shocking just how simplistic we have treated people's bodies and their condition, their uh, disease conditions. I love that idea of sort of the, the body takes in a plant and sort of <laughs> has like a buffet of different um, compounds that it can choose from and it picks and chooses what, what it needs. Uh, it's a, exactly. a really good, it's a really good visual. And I did want to go back to um, kind of going back to the plant side of sort of different environmental conditions, maybe upregulating different processes and producing certain, whether it be flavonoids or terpenes or things like that. Um, and it reminds me of conversations I've had with folks who are on the cannabis genomic side who are sort of searching for the markers in the cannabis genome to, um, to find what genes are producing these terpenes or, or flavonoids or cannabinoids. And I wonder if sort of the solution is kind of a combination approach of you need the genetics, but you also need to maybe specialize the environment to make it more suitable for producing those sorts of compounds. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? Well, yeah. Ultimately, with xenohormesis, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about um, the environment having changes in it that upregulate or downregulate certain enzymes or certain genes, right? And so in, in a scientific uh, perspective, we would want to standardize that environment so that we can understand what was going on in a certain environment. But ultimately what's going on is that's what's happening constantly in our environment. Let's look at the fires. You know, I'm in, up in Oregon where we just had to evacuate um, due to a fire that came through Ashland and, and headed into some small communities, destroyed 4,000 homes. But let's talk about the environment and the smoke that was in the environment. All those crops, including all the cannabis that's grown around here, which is a fair amount, as well as all the hemp now, mm -hmm. that induced gene changes. That induced changes in the proteins that were being expressed in terms of enzymes and receptors in the plant. And therefore the chemistry had just changed. And so could it be that by consuming those plants that it might make an organism more fit to survive smoked environments? And that's, that's the smoky environments, excuse me, that's the xenohormesis model. Right. So, yeah, we need to know what's being upregulated and downregulated. I'm not putting down, you know, science in the way that we need to be able to standardize a condition. That's what GW has done to have the perfect, you know, remedy that's got just the amount of uh, other phytochemicals besides the cannabinoids they want in it. Um, but reality is for medicinal plants and for people living in a certain area and taking those medicinal plants in that area, 
there's probably a huge advantage that we don't understand yet because of the plants adapting to the environment and therefore the humans adapting from the plant's chemistry to the environment. Wow. So are you essentially saying that, you know, if uh, maybe if a plant were exposed to high temperature or something like that, and it, would, it generated a response that um, consuming that plant, you could theoretically get some sort of benefit in, in your own body to be resistant to that heat as well? That's exactly what I'm saying, okay. that that's the xenohormesis model. And, and there's probably places where that model is weak and there's probably places where that model is strong. So it may not be for all environmental conditions, but think it through in terms of human uh, existence and, and mammalian existence that lived on plants. You know, the plants certainly communicated, coming back to a pollen-esque model, the plants certainly were communicating with, with the species around them. And that communication was probably more key than we think it is because we don't have the technology yet to understand it. If you look at a jungle situation and you listen to the wildlife in a jungle, they talk to each other. They may not know exactly what those sounds uh, uh, in terms of what kind of words they would be in, in the equivalent of human language, but they know a warning sound right? All species can recognize a warning sound from another species, provided they have lived together. And so that's exactly the same kind of model that this xenohormesis model is. So cannabis really has its potential. All medicinal plants, have all food plants have this potential for warning us uh, of what's coming if we pay attention. And this is where when we're growing in, in duplicate environments, when we're trying to recreate the environment, indoor um, cannabis, and I know I'm a, you're about to get a bunch of letters from indoor growers now, but, but indoor cannabis is exactly the same environment, and therefore the chemistry is exactly the same. The same genes are being upregulated and downregulated, and therefore the message is exactly the same every time to the human consumer. That You could argue that that's a good thing. You could also argue that that's not necessarily for the good of the person in that environment taking that. Yeah, and one of the things that that struck me when I watched that that video from your lecture at Cam in 2019 was this idea that plants use terpenes to communicate with each other. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more to that. Yeah, sure. So the so the terpenes, as uh, as tired as I am talking about terpenes and cannabis, I have to be super honest. They're they're still really interesting and they're still super active. You know, terpenes to me are the closest thing we have to, to pharmaceutical strength compounds in plants. Um, they're highly uh, active um, to the point where they can easily be toxic as well. But um, yeah, terpenes, they, the way that plants use terpenes, because they're volatile, right? By, you know, if you look at the term essential oils, essential oils used to be called volatile. <clears throat> Excuse me essential oils used to be called volatile oils because that their volatility, these compounds, especially the monoterpenes, but also the sesquiterpenes go off into the environment, can float off a leaf and float over to the next plant in a gaseous form and tell that plant, whatever that message is, right? Oh, oh dear, something's coming. Um, that, that, that deer that's chomping on me is coming your way, upregulate some protective compounds. You know, that's what's going on. Or, more robust growth that's been shown as well you can get more robust growth with with the right signaling in the environment from different plants uh, an experiment was done years ago with tannins where uh, they they um, took a particular herd of a mammal i forget which herd it was it was an antelope like animal uh, excuse me it was an antelope like um, animal and they fenced it off inside this region because um, they wanted to study these trees that they fed off of and after a certain amount of time, the antelope started dropping dead. And when they went and they did the autopsies on the antelope, what they found was these plants were communicating with each other. And so what was happening is they were upregulating their tannins. And the tannins, of course, can be incredibly useful for humans, but can also be, if you eat, consume too much of them, can block nutrient absorption. And so these animals were dropping dead because they weren't getting the nutrients they needed. And so this, is, this was precipitated by uh, terpenes in the environment that went off into this volatile 
gaseous phase and, you know, reached the next plan and said, hey, this is dangerous. And because they were in, a, in a, the same zone, they couldn't escape uh, because of the fence around this zone. Then essentially they were in a place where um, the, the antelope would have not preferred to eat those compounds, but that's all they had to eat. So they, they ended up passing away. So, yeah, terpenes communicate between plants to plant and very likely it's been shown through forest bathing, uh, Shinrin Ku, the Japanese call it, that terpenes communicate with humans as well. And so one of the things you'll see in humans, there's, there's been these great studies, it's called forest bathing. Um, and it's been, been these great studies where they walk people through, the control group grows through Central Park, for example. Um, now these studies have been done in Germany and Japan and a few of them in the US. Um, but we'll, we'll use Central Park as an example. So the control group walks through Central Park for whatever it is, an hour every day, whereas the experimental group walks through a forest, a regular forest, um, every day for the same hour. And what they find is the people that were going through the forest upregulate natural killer cells, their immune function is stronger, their stress hormones go down, their blood pressure goes down, their sleep quality improves. And so... The, the reason behind this, although it's still theoretical, but the reason behind this is speculated to be terpenes from the trees being put off to, and the humans in, inhaling them. So very important compounds. Now, when we get to cannabis plant and swallowing them, um, what's really great is a lot of these terpenes tend to be penetration enhancers. So things like limonene, uh, which by the way, limonene is almost the perfect uh, uh, penetration enhancer for cannabinoids. Um, people have commonly used menthol in the cannabis industry, but menthol is better for more polar compounds to penetrate the skin. Cannabinoids, as you know, are not polar at all. They're highly lipophilic with a log P of around six. And so they're going to need something to a special kind of penetration enhancer. And limonene works really well for that. Think of it as an icebreaker in the Arctic. Uh, moving through the ice. In other words, penetrating the transdermal and the epidermal layers, um, the cannabinoids can follow limonene through it like a ship would follow an icebreaker going through the Arctic. Wow. So, so yeah, very, very important uh, compounds. Um, linalol uh, also is potentially a bit of a, a penetration enhancer. A beta-caryophylline, not so much, but as we know, beta-caryophylline is incredibly um, useful and important to uh, CB2 signaling. Um, so lots of compounds to to like and to love in in these comp in these plants and the smell um, too. The aroma of <laughs> terpenes. There's some really bad smelling terpenes, especially oxidized ones that come out of labs that have been using back ovens to to pull out their terpenes. Uh, a lot of times they're oxidized, and you can smell it. They smell like Satan himself, uh, but uh, when they're fresh, um, they're great. And they also go off really quickly into that volatile stage, just as they would in the plant. So when you pick your cannabis, the a study from University of Mississippi some years ago showed that about 50% of your terpenes would go off into the environment. Um, in other words, you're losing 50% of your terpenes within 24 hours of, of the drying process. Wow. Well, that's really fascinating. And one thing that stood out to me was this idea that menthol um, aids in absorption. And is that why a lot of pain creams <laughs> smell that way? Um, no, actually, uh, in that case, it's, it's, uh, it's because the menthol tends to be both a stimulating and relaxing terpene. It uh, stimulates blood flow to the, to the uh, area that it goes into, and it does penetrate, so it goes into the muscle but it also is relaxing to muscle. And so that's why menthol is so popular. And um, yeah, it, it, unfortunately, uh, many gyms smell like menthol because of everybody using some sort of menthol rub. Right. Unfortunately, the cannabis industry has followed that uh, trend. And I'm, I'm, I think we can do better than menthol smell. You know, there's subtleties. It's like good wine, right? You can, you can have some really fine wines that have notes that are um, enjoyable. And then there's menthol. <laughs> <laughs> right. And a another thing that you said was that you're, you're tired of talking about terpenes. And it's funny that being in the industry for a number of years myself, 
um, I, I find myself being a bit tired of it, or at least maybe thinking or assuming everyone already knows about terpenes. But I think the reality is when I'm talking to friends or family members who, you know, aren't so much in the industry, that so many consumers are, are blind to terpenes or what they do or um, how they can kind of enhance the, the aroma or the experience. And I think a major problem with that is that not all labs are testing for them. Um, so how do physicians, clinicians, or even consumers sort of navigate through that without having that information? Well, that's a good question. So, you know, I come from the medicinal plant field. So cannabis is, is to me just another medicinal plant. And so a lot of the tools and a lot of the thinking that I use comes from a global view of medicinal plants and, and not just cannabis. And so speaking of global views, I mean, one of the things that, that any herbalist worth his salt or any um, quality control manager worth his salt are going to do is called organoleptic testing. And again, organoleptic testing is just a fancy name for taste, smell, you know, um, appearance. Um, so you're going to really look at something and you're going to smell it and you're going to taste it. And you can really get a lot of information from that. For example, you can, limonene is a really obvious um, aroma in cannabis. Linalol is a really obvious aroma. Beta-caryophylline is a really obvious um, aroma. So a lot of these compounds, a lot of these terpenes, if you start to understand their smell and even their taste, um, yeah, it's possible to make your way past not having analytics. Now, ideally, in an industry that's fairly um, unregulated and has a lot to learn still, um, yeah, the, I would be a big fan of analytics. Yeah, and I know you do a lot of work training clinicians, training physicians. You're going to be doing that at CAMED 2021 as part of our medical practicum. Uh, and I imagine that that population is very used to sort of straightforward, this is the dose, this is the effect for this condition. How do you help them sort of get used to the idea of using a not so straightforward medicine like cannabis? Yeah, really good question, because um, <laughs> I, I've, I've definitely, from, from being uh, upfront and, and uh lecturing and talking to people about this. I definitely see the lights go on in some, but, but the interest fade in others. Um, and I think, I think the real way is to talk about it in their model scientifically so that they can really get it. And, you know, I think one of the really obvious things to me that I think helps a lot of physicians is realize that number one, plant compounds are often pleiotropic. In other words, they hit multiple targets. They're polyvalent is another term that we could use. They, they hit multiple targets in terms of pharmacological definitions here I'm using. And so that's one thing to keep in mind. But then we've got another model where um, multiple compounds can hit the same target. And essentially think about it. You know, I just talked about the stilbenoids in cannabis and I said, yeah, well, there's at least half a dozen known now. Well, right, half a dozen with the same structural motif, the same structural skeletal framework, slightly different in terms of add-ons of oxygens or nitrogens or whatever it is. Well, those compounds are going to be attracted to a lot of the same proteins. And so it's not uncommon that, uh, you know, a multiple compounds can hit more than can hit the same target. And so you get this in, in that sense, you get this pharmacodynamic synergy right? From those two pieces, the fact that a compound can hit multiple targets and multiple compounds can hit one target. Mm -hmm. um, so we get these potentiated pharmacological effects. And I think once people start to see that, and then you lay out the network pharmacology model where we look at um, pharmacology as not about one, one target. And this has been the dogma in pharmacology is, you know, isolation and selectivity. You know, the compound's got to be selective. And if it's not selective, we call it a dirty drug. Well, the best thing I've, I've heard um, said about dirty drugs recently was dirty drugs are drugs that work. <laughs> in other words, if you take Gleevec, for example, a very uh, famous uh, pharma molecule for, can uh, molecule, excuse me, for cancer, 
Um, the reason it works is because it hits multiple targets. And yet it was designed, it was designed to hit one target. And so this, this idea of hitting one target is number one, not really very often successfully achieved in pharmacology. Uh, and number two, it's goes against all uh, science against network pharmacology. Network pharmacology really suggests that we need to hit multiple places, multiple nodes in a network to massage or to nudge that network towards a different order, towards a different uh, entrainment, if you will, because that's really what we're looking at. Physiology is an entrainment of patterns. And once we can, and we can get disease patterns, we can get a homeostasis of disease. And if we can push that physiology, if we can nudge it off of that homeostasis of disease into a healthier place, that's ultimately what we're trying to do is change the pattern, right? The physiological pattern. And that can be done pharmacologically, but let's keep in mind, it can also be done with exercise, with good nutrition, with love, even somebody's life, right? It, it, it can, nudges can be subtle. And I did go, want to go back to one point that you had made going back to terpenes, forgive me. Um, you did say, <laughs> you did say that they could be toxic at certain levels. And one thing that came up when, again, I was talking with, uh, with Cindy Orser, she expressed some concern with the fact that some manufacturers or producers will actually add in terpenes to certain products. Um, to kind of scary levels. Um, I mean, she was talking about, you know, percentages that were, you know, orders of magnitude higher than what you would find in a, in a normal plant. Um, so wondering if you had any comments on that or if that's a concern. Absolutely. Um, excuse me. I have a lot of comments about that. So, so first of all, let's, let's talk about nature, right? So when we find terpenes in plants, they're usually below 10%. And so let's use that as a, as a rule of thumb that if you've got a product with more than 10% terpenes, and that's even on the high side, it's going to depend on which there are terpenes that are highly toxic. So you're still, you're still at risk. If we look at cannabis, the terpene levels are usually about three to 7% after looking at hundreds of, of C of A's um, on various products. Um, and so what we really need to be aware of is that we probably don't want to breach that level unless there's a very specific therapeutic activity to be done. And if that's the case, the person doling that terpene out needs to be highly trained. They need to know what they're talking about and they need to be super aware of toxicity. I have seen um, data on uh, uh, dabs that show up to 60% terpenes. Now, let's talk for a second about this other aspect of terpenes. They're solvents. They dissolve things. <laughs> so need I say more? You inhale 60% terpenes into your brain. Mm. The potential for highly pro-oxidant free radical production, breaking down membranes, inducing apoptosis of neurons, pissing off the microglia and the astrocytes. I mean, not a good idea. And, and people are doing this daily. I, I would suggest that we're probably going to see some studies coming out about dabbing uh, where people that are long-term doing it really have some uh, unusual neurological anomalies when they're dabbing at that, that sort of, with that sort of product, when it's up to that high. And so I, we just need to be super aware that just terpenes, because they're from plants, aren't super safe. They're, like I said, they're the closest thing we have to pharmaceuticals right out of a plant because they're so highly concentrated and potentially highly toxic. So, uh, yeah, we need to be aware of not only quality control in terms of what's in our products, but also in terms of safety data and toxicology data. And I don't see that happening, unfortunately, in the industry at this point. Yeah, that's scary. Um, and I think a lot of people have this conception that, you know, cannabis is, is harmless, um, perhaps mainly because they haven't been able to find a, a lethal dose of THC. Um, but it sounds like, as we, as we found out in this conversation, there's a lot of other compounds in the plant that at, at high doses could have a very deleterious effect. 
Yeah, I, I assure you that you can easily find um, doses that will lead lethal doses uh, of terpenes, and, and they're not that high. Wow. In fact, there's a there's a famous story in the herbal community, um, not the cannabis community, about a woman in Colorado. I think this happened in the 70s, um, where she was using pennyroyal uh, oil, uh, essential oil, to induce an abortion. And so she bought a little dram of uh, essential oil of pennyroyal, and she took the whole thing. And guess what? She died of kidney failure. Wow. So yeah, it's it's um, it's a, something that the natural products industry has been dealing with for ever since uh, it's been in in its you know infancy, um, and only the cannabis industry is starting to realize now. All right. Well, so winding down here, I did want to um, give you a chance to comment on because in addition to instructing as part of our medical practicum, I know that you're going to be presenting as well on. Uh, different extraction techniques, um, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but specifically comparing a more home, uh, more home style method of extraction and kind of comparing it to a more commercial style of extraction to see um, what the output is for CBD. So I want to give you a chance to talk a bit about that and maybe give us a little bit of a preview of what that lecture will be about. Yeah, sure. So what we did was we mimicked a home extraction. So look, there's lots of people um, for, with the price of cannabis that's out there. Uh, people that actually need it for a medicine are really at a disadvantage, especially if they're um, if they're not making a lot of a good, uh, if not making a good, good good wage, which unfortunately in the United States is a huge percentage of the population. Um, and so what you're seeing is people growing it and then making their own medicine. And so really this was, we hoped that this study would be a service to um, all the people out there that are at home making their own medicine. And then we, what we did was we mimicked a typical herbal extraction. So this is not a pour over technique. This is not, you know, a cold uh, freeze technique. Um, what we did is just mimicked uh, making a typical maceration, or in other words, by maceration, we mean soaking the plant in uh, ethanol or a percolation where you're running it through a percolation cone. And by the way, percolation is how they used to make um, all the plant back in the days when the United States pharmacopoeia was stuffed with herbal medicines, because that's what we used. Um, percolation is, was the preferred method. And so we compared percolation to maceration, and then we compared the maceration time points. So if you talk to a traditional herbalist, they'll tell you that you know, you have to, you have to uh, macerate for at least uh, two weeks or if not a month. And um, that is not true. And I've never believed that. And so when I was at UNC doing some research on echinacea, which by the way, has got a CB2, a couple of CB2 ligands in it. Um, I saw this opportunity to, to do that. And unfortunately, I realized as I was doing the experiment, as I was actually making the medicine, making the tincture of the uh, uh, echinacea, that um, I had an opportunity. So I didn't really plan this out. But at that point in time, so this is this is a good 10 plus years ago, um, I showed that a 24 hour uh, maceration was as good as a two week maceration in terms of the content of uh, the isobutyl amides are also known as the alkyl amides, which is where the CB2 ligands come from. Um, so what we did in this study just recently is we compared three minutes to one hour to two weeks. And what we found is that the hour was as good as the two week and the three, three minute was, as, was about 94% of the, of the hour. Uh, so we had, and this is what we're measuring is CBD here, not terpenes, but CBD. So we had a, a great, um, a great, good, strong data there to show that. Now, when we compared that to percolation, and this has been an ongoing debate in herbal medicine about the strength of percolations versus the strength of macerations, and there's advantages to both, there's disadvantages to both, but we did a typical percolation. We found a very significant um, increase in our CBD um, yield. So, uh, and, and I'm not surprised by that at all, but I think a lot of, uh, a lot of traditional herbalists will be surprised by that. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people who are 
are growing plants at home. And it seems like every season, more people I know are, are doing just that. I think they'll be very interested to, to see your results. Uh, yeah, I'm, ex I'm excited to show them. Great. And just winding down now, um, one final thing, I wanted to give you an opportunity to plug any website, social media, or um, anything that you'd like the, the listeners to, to access to learn more about the work that you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I do. Uh, I like to call it an audio science journal. Um, I do something called the Spellman Report, spellmanreport.com. We're also on Facebook. And uh, in fact, this month, we, we're just releasing a uh, interview with uh, Ethan Russo. Um, so it's, been, it's both cannabis as well as natural products. Um, and my idea really is to, is to be of service to educate. And hopefully there's good information in there. We've got an episode on COVID. Um, actually a couple of episodes on COVID. Um, so there's, there's lots of good information there that might be useful to, to, to your listeners. I will put that in the show notes so people can, can get right over to it. I appreciate it. Ben. All right, Kevin, thanks again so much for joining us. This was a great conversation and, uh, look forward to seeing you out in Pasadena. Likewise, Ben. Thanks for your time. I do hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin Spellman. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to the American Cannabis Nurses Association for sponsoring this episode. Please go to CannabisNurses.org slash 2020 Annual Conference to register for their annual Cannabis Care Conference, which is being held virtually December 6th through 8th. Our next episode will drop October 28th. In the meantime, please go to camedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into that drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2021 VIP dinner and keep you up to date on all things CanMed 2021. Give us a follow on social media too. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed events. And lastly, if you're listening via a podcast app, you can subscribe to our feed so that new episodes automatically download to your device. And if you do like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.